Let's look at the words of the living God from Matthew chapter 5. In your Bible, look at verse 10. These are the words that uh, Jesus taught when he was here on earth. In verse 10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Some people may look at these precious words of our Lord Jesus Christ and wonder, well, is Jesus' teaching here on persecution outdated? Is it, is it still relevant for us to today? Uh, the, the short answer to that is yes, it is definitely relevant. It is not outdated. And my friends, uh, as, as we look at this, we need to understand what's going on, even in our own culture. As I listened to Mark Niles from the Australian Christian Lobby Group, he gave a lot of examples of why this is not outdated and why this is relevant for us to today. And by the way, Martin said, who is a who is a lawyer, by the way, he said New Zealand's worse off, more progressive than Australia. But he gave he has seventy examples where he's had to defend the religious liberty of Christians. Seventy examples from three years, I think. Three. There's a lot, a lot of cases, and that's just the ones that uh, he's he's been involved with. Let, let me just give you an example of of what this might look like and why this is this persecution is not outdated and is certainly relevant. For example, there's a a woman in Australia who uh, was taken to court just for handing out pieces of paper and trying to help women as they walked into the abortion clinic. Over the last three years, she's been able to save 300 lives, roughly. And so, just by uh, offering to help people as they're walking into the abortion clinic, so they, that was considered a crime to some people, and it, and it went all the way to the high court, and she lost. So this mother of 13 children is now a criminal in Australia for just handing out pieces of paper in front of an abortion clinic. She's a criminal. Probably can't get a job. She's trying to love people and save people. Do you understand the situation that we're in? That's just one example. Another gentleman who's, uh, who was a university student, and this, I'm sure this you could give examples in New Zealand too, but this guy had heard a sermon from Matthew chapter 5 from his pastor. So he said, oh, I'm going to go be salt and light at my university. So the person whom he was working with on a project was uh, there at the university. He was, was explaining her anxiety and how she's worried and she's fretting and all this sort of stuff. So he, he just offered to pray for her, and she accepted his prayer. And so all he did was pray for her. Two days later, he's pulled up in the administration office of the university and said, you're gone. He's kicked out of the university, not allowed back. We're simply praying for someone who has anxiety. Another example, this, this, this group did nothing. <laughs> uh, he, Martin mentioned there was, a, there was a magazine in Australia called White Magazine. And they were very well known in Australia for, for uh, doing photos of weddings and so forth, and and uh, that that that's their that's what their business was. They were very well known. In fact, their magazine apparently went to other countries around the world too. But after Australia passed the uh, same-sex uh, uh, marriage bill, the LGBT community—by the way, that stands for lesbian, bisexual. Uh, gay and transgender. And by the way, when you see the plus on the end of that, LGBT community, that, that there's other stuff that goes with that. Well, they decided they were going to go after White Magazine. They were relentless. So White's Magazine approach was, well, we'll just do nothing and hopefully, hopefully the storm passes by. 
But the LGBT community with their agenda has, has, they're relentless in their attacks. They'll find a different way. And so they went after the sponsors, those who were advertising in the magazine. And now this magazine no longer exists because all the sponsors left the magazine. Therefore, they have no money. Why did that happen? Because the magazine chose to do nothing. So do you see, these are just some examples of how Christians are under attack today. So this is, the, the persecution here is not outdated, it's definitely relevant. And it's, it's a worldwide thing. And in fact, according to the World Christian Encyclopedia here, way back in 1980, there were 2.2 billion people living in 79 countries under significant restrictions on their religious freedom. 60% of all Christians live in these countries, and there's something like 224 million of, of the Christians in the world live in countries where uh, the, the state government is just a monster. It's, it's devastating. The, the state interference and harassment and persecution is horrible. Uh, I read last week, I think, what is it, North Korea? There's something, the estimates are somewhere between 50 and 100 thousand Christians are in concentration camps in North Korea. That's the reality of our brothers and sisters around the world. And so the least we can say here is that it, certainly from a global standpoint, the words of Jesus are very relevant and indeed very precious. And hopefully they're precious to my brothers and sisters who are in those concentration camps so I have a series of questions as we go through through this message here today, and hopefully the Word of God will be able to answer these questions for you. But here's, here's a question to think of. Who are the persecuted? Who are the persecuted? Well, according to Jesus, they are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. They are the ones who are living out the Beatitudes that Jesus has already taught in this passage. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to preach all those Beatitudes there. You can read them in Matthew chapter 5. But according to 2 Timothy, it says that all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Let me give you an example from church history. Any of you heard of Savonarola? Savonarola was uh, one of the great reformers in church history. He was a very powerful preacher who condemned personal sin and, and the church corruption. He, was, uh, he lived in Italy. Uh, and this Italian preacher helped pave the way for those who came after him. Guys, you know, like the Martin Luthers and the Zwinglis and the Calvins. Here's what one biographer said of Savonarola. You can see um, him preaching there. He, he said, uh, the biographer says this, quote, His preaching was a voice of thunder, and his denunciation of sin was so terrible that the people who listened to him went about the streets half days, bewildered and speechless. There's a statue of Savonarola, which I find interesting. It, as far as I know, it still exists today. But, uh, but, but his congregations, it said, were so often in tears that the whole building just resounded with the sobbing and the weeping of people. They were under such great conviction. Well, as you can see in the next slide here, he was eventually killed for his faith. See, people don't often like the truth. And he preached the Bible. And so Savonarola was convicted of heresy or false teaching, and eventually his body was burned at the stake. So who are the persecuted? Jesus says here they are those who are of the kingdom of heaven. These are, these are the people living out these truths that Jesus is teaching here, these beatitudes. Another question for you to consider is this. Why are Christians persecuted? So we're talking about Christians, people who are living out these truths of the Beatitudes. But why is this happening? Verse 10 says Christians are persecuted. Look at it. Verse 10. Why? For righteousness' sake. The idea of righteousness' sake there is Christians are persecuted simply for living, living right. Does that make sense to you? Another way to define righteousness in verse 10 is to look at the parallel in verse 11. Right? The Bible often says things in little different ways in the same context, but gives you kind of the same idea. 
See, verse 10, the persecution there is on account of righteousness. But in verse 11, it's on the account of who? Jesus. By the way, the point being the same thing, right? Somebody who is living right is living like Christ. They are Christ-like. So, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, Jesus says. So it's kind of the same thing. On my account and on the account of righteousness is very similar, and uh, there's much agreement on this, by the way. For example, uh, the late great commentator Matthew Henry says this, quote on the screen. He said, all this is for righteousness' sake, for my sake, verse 10 and 11 says. If for righteousness' sake, then for Christ's sake, for he is interested in the work of righteousness. Enemies to righteousness are enemies to Christ. This precludes those from the blessedness who suffer justly and are evil spoken of truly for their real crimes. Let such be ashamed and confounded. It is part of their punishment. It is not the suffering but the cause that makes the martyr. Those suffer for righteousness' sake who suffer because they will not sin against their consciences and who suffer for doing that which is good. Whatever pretense persecutors have, it is the power of godliness that they have an enmity to. It is really Christ and His righteousness that are maligned, hated, and persecuted. End quote. That's why Christians are persecuted. Basically because they don't like Christ. Now, here's another question to consider. Why, uh, did, did Christ talk about specific types of affliction? Or, or is, is he just kind of generally speaking here? And, and the basic answer is, yeah, there's, there's uh, at least three specific types of affliction that Jesus mentions that Christians will endure. Notice, first of all, Christians can expect physical persecution. The word persecution there in your Bible has this basic meaning of of chasing after you to drive you away and to pursue you. You need to be aware that uh, for Christians, one of the greatest attacks, pursuing and chasing, that, that we are now experiencing in the Western world in particular, places like Australia and New Zealand, is it's, it's going to come from the LGBT community. So you need to know, you need to be prepared for this, if it hasn't hit you yet, it will very soon. So it, it, it's, it's all about gender identity and your sexual orientation. So you need to be, you need to be ready to know how to answer those questions. Uh, for example, Martin was, was giving an illustration of, of a couple who wanted to be foster parents. They wanted to help people, love people. Well, they went through this whole process of, of becoming uh, applying to be foster parents, and the last session they had to endure was all these questions on, what's your, what's your thoughts on gender identity and sexual orientation? The end of that session was they rejected their application because their home environment is abusive and hateful. We want children to go into environments where they will feel safe and they will be loved. So having a biblical worldview makes you hateful and unloving. <laughs> you, see, you see how that works? And you need to be ready to know how to answer that and deal with that. So we, we can expect physical persecution. And from that meaning develops this connotation then of physical persecution. You can be harassed. You can be abused. You can receive other unjust treatment. Number two, Christians can also expect verbal persecution. And that will come at you in the form of insults, right? Have, has anybody ever called you homophobic or, or narrow-minded or bigoted or something else like that? That's what you can expect. Because notice the Bible, when it, when it talks about you're going to be, Jesus says, you will be reviled, that carries the idea of very serious in, in, insulting going on. Uh, the, the, this community is going to throw abusive words in your face. They will mock you viciously. They will take your job away. 
they will take your income away, and they plan to make you a criminal. And if they can, they'll put you in prison. An example of this kind of treatment is when Jesus Christ stood before the religious uh, leaders of his community there in Israel, called the Sanhedrin. And uh, in Matthew 26, verse 67, it says, They spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? That's what Jesus had to endure. Jesus says we can expect to receive the same. And number three, Christians can expect verbal persecution in the form of slander. Now, you say, what's slander? Slander is when you're, you're getting abusive words when you're not actually present, right? So the Sanhedrin's abusing Jesus right in front of his face, but slanders when they do it behind your back, and, you know, the knife is in the back, so to speak. The words coming from the knife are in your back when you're not even there. And it hurts. I think slander behind our backs when we're not there can be harder to take, partly because you're not there to defend yourself, uh, it's, it's hard to take. And so as a result, it has an opportunity to spread, and, and, and people can, can often believe it. See, if, if you're not the first one to tell someone information, and, and someone hears this, this slander from somebody else before you can talk to them, they often believe the other person because it's the first information to come to them. And uh, we don't even have a chance to correct it. It hurts. Jesus says we can expect this kind of persecution. But why is righteousness persecuted, you might ask? Why is righteousness persecuted? Think about it. If right living means that you're going to be like Christ, you'll be godly, you will be merciful, pure, peaceful, peaceable, why would anybody persecute that? Do you wonder why? I mean, that doesn't seem very offensive, does it? But the reality is, a a life that's actually devoted to being like Christ, to being godly, will be persecuted. You say, well, why is that? Well, Jesus said it this way in John 3. He said, people love their sin. People love their sin. That's why they will persecute you. Uh, Let let me show you just some examples. you'll, You'll see how this works out. For example, let's say you're somebody who actually cherishes purity. See, you don't want all these people shacking up and uh, living together out there and living in immorality. You actually cherish purity. Well, guess what? Your life is going to be an attack on free sex. (laughs) Your light's going to shine, and they're not going to like that. If you don't drink beer, (laughs) guess what? Your life's going to be a statement against those who love alcohol. Uh, I've been in work environments where they invite me out to their to their parties where they go get drunk and and I've been attacked personally by workmates who can't understand why I don't want to go get drunk with them. Hmm. So they attack me just because I'm different. And and if you're somebody who actually pursues self-control, then your life is going to actually accuse someone who is a glutton and eats too much. If you're somebody who lives a simple life, then you will show the folly of somebody who's living a very materialistic life. If you walk humbly with your God, you're going to expose the evil of pride. If you're somebody who who thinks it's important to love other people as yourself, and you're a very punctual person, you want to show up on time, and you're thorough in your dealings with people, you're going to show the inferiority of people's laziness and their negligence. If you're a spiritually minded person, you're going to expose the worldly mindedness of people around you. And they're going to have a hard time with that and they and they will attack you for that. Because people love their sin. So what are the responses to a righteous life? Well Jesus gives at least two responses to a righteous life, and they're described here in John chapter 3. 
Look at this, it's on the screen, because these are Jesus' words. He says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. So the two options, my friends, are this. Either, Either you will be persecuted... Or that person will hopefully be converted. In other words, as Jesus says, by conversion, I mean, Jesus says, hopefully they will come to the light. So if they don't like your light, then they will persecute you. If they're drawn to the light of the world, Jesus says he's the light of the world, then they will be converted. And we can see these two options here. For example, Right here in Matthew 5, in in, in verse 10, Jesus says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And in the same context, in verse 16, Jesus says, Let your light shine before others. Why? So they'll see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Well, that's that's an example of coming to the light. Right? They're going to be converted as, as your light shines before men. Well, you might ask, well, what about all the unbelievers in my life who, are, who, who don't seem to be coming to Christ and, and, and are not persecuting me? You say, well, your, your pattern here, your model doesn't seem to work, right? Because you're saying either they're gonna, I'm going to be persecuted or they're going to be converted. Well, what if that isn't happening to me? Well, there's at least two possible explanations. See, Jesus says either... Your light is hidden, because in this context, notice what Jesus says. Uh, In verse 15, he talks about people taking this this lamp and this light and putting it under a basket instead of putting it on a stand so it gives light to all the house. So that represents you. (laughs) So either your light is hidden, you're, you're, you're keeping the the gospel of Jesus Christ concealed by not letting your distinctive values show, you're refusing to have this influence in your community. Or the second explanation is you're letting your distinctive values show and the people around you are actually moving in a certain direction. Either either they could be moving toward persecution or they could be moving toward conversion. Right? So sometimes it just takes time for those things to happen. They may not happen immediately is what I'm saying, right? So, for example, that, uh, that young man in university I was talking about earlier, all he did was pray for his classmate. Well, he wasn't holed up before the administration of the university until a couple days later. <laughs> and then he was kicked out of university. He wasn't allowed on campus. Well, that took a couple days, and sometimes these sort of things might, might take time. And sometimes people are saved many, many years down the line. Uh, the, the God's work in their life could, could take many, many years. But there, there's all kinds of factors that can hinder persecution, right? Um, maybe it's just an issue of money for some people, or the court system might be slowing them down, whatever it might be, okay? Uh, but m- many people are torn inside themselves. They can sometimes hate the claims of God from the Bible, uh, and then sometimes even the, your light as it shines might show their darkness in them, and that, uh, that might be an issue. And, but, but at the same time, some people are drawn to God because of our light. So at the same time, they might be repulsed by your light and drawn to Christ by your light. Sometimes it, there can be mixed emotions going on there. So we need to examine ourselves here. I hope you're not one of those secret agent Christians. <laughs> uh, if you are one of those secret agent Christians, you know you're you're just trying to hide, and you know you don't really want to let your light shine. You're hiding it under the bushel, so to speak. Well, if you're one of those, Jesus is telling you to repent, forsake your sin, take the basket off the light, let it shine, and resolve to be. Sincere. 
here's another question to consider. What are the blessings and promises of the persecuted? Because did you notice how Jesus, Jesus started this passage here? He starts with the word blessed. Someone who is persecuted, Jesus says, is blessed. <laughs> That's interesting. Very interesting, isn't it? And in verse 11, he starts with the word blessed. Again, the idea is there, Jesus is saying, you are fortunate. You are happy. Blessed when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then he commands you to rejoice and be glad. Oh, Jesus, how can you do that? <laughs> what? Jesus just commanded me to rejoice and be glad. That's a shocking piece of counsel, is it not? That's shocking. What can possibly be, uh, you know, justify this command to be glad when people hate me and they mock me and they slander me and they torture me and may even kill me? How can that, how can you rejoice in that? Well, my friends, Jesus says, if you go on farther, he says, this is what they did to the prophets. And this is what they did to Jesus' apostles. Because Jesus tells the apostles in Matthew 24, he says, they will deliver you to persecution or tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. That's what Jesus told his apostles. By the way, notice again, it's for Jesus' name's sake. That's the reason they do this. Now, why is there this shocking counsel from Jesus? Rejoice and be glad. I mean, what can justify that kind of counsel to people who are in pain? Well, my friends, may I remind you who Jesus is and what Jesus knows? What Jesus has seen? May I remind you of reality? May I remind you who is speaking here? This is Jesus, the creator of the universe, your Savior, hopefully. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking, and he's saying here, by the way, the, most of them are going to be martyred, except for the Apostle John. They tried to kill him, but it didn't work. And Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. Glad in what? What are you rejoicing about? Jesus is saying you rejoice and be glad in regard to your persecution. How can Jesus say that? Well, he can say it because he, he knows. He knows that beyond a shadow of a doubt, there is a reward coming. There's the reward of heaven, and Jesus knows the reward in heaven is, a, is, is greater than any suffering that we temporarily receive on this earth. I believe the blessings of the kingdom actually are threefold. Uh, let me explain this real quick. Uh, I, I see it as something as a present reality, the, uh, also referring to the millennial kingdom and the eternal kingdom. And I say that because look, look at Jesus' words again in Mark chapter 10 here. Because Jesus says, uh, this He says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Notice the key word, now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So notice Jesus says, we're, we're promised blessings here and now and in the life to come as well. So we're promised blessings here and now, but number two, we can look forward to these blessings in the millennial kingdom, the, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, when he's going to come and establish his reign. He'll rule and reign from Jerusalem. And the Bible says we will be co-rulers with Jesus Christ. And it will be on a renewed earth. Not the, you know, but anyway, here's what Revelation 20 verse 4 says. Uh, the Apostle John says, I saw thrones and 
seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. What a glorious thing to think about. You will get to be a co-ruler under King Jesus. How cool will that be? But Jesus also knows there, after that thousand years, then there's eternity, which will never end, the eternal kingdom. That's the greatest blessing ever where you're going to live forever in our Lord's kingdom, enjoying His presence Uh, There will be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more death, not even no more nights, it says, the Bible, and, and it doesn't get any better than that. So how should a believer respond to persecution? Well, look what Jesus says in verse 12. How how should a believer respond to persecution? (laughs) Again, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. So the believer's response to persecution should not be. Let's talk about what it shouldn't be. Don't just retreat and hide. That might be the natural response. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going to get away from the world. Total retreat, total hiding. I want to escape from this world, escape from responsibility, escape from the Great Commission. My friends, because we belong to Christ, the Bible says we are no longer of this world. He sent us into this world to serve just as He Himself came into this world to serve. So the question is this, my friends. What do you do when you're persecuted? The command is rejoice and be glad. Be glad there means you're exulting in this. You're rejoicing greatly. You are overjoyed It literally means you're skipping and jumping with happy excitement. I know this might be hard for you to imagine, but let's just say your your boss just fired you because you refused to sign up to the LGBT community's agenda of their whole gender identity and sexual orientation. And so you just got fired from your job. Can you imagine skipping and jumping out to your car and rejoicing and being glad, I just got fired for standing for truth. That's what Jesus is saying we should do. <laughs> wow. It's an imperative mood in the Greek, which makes his words here more than a suggestion. This is not a suggestion. Uh, it's actually a command. And yes, you are hearing Jesus correctly when he says, Rejoice and be glad. And if we're not glad, then we're not trusting God, and we're actually being disobedient to God here. By the way, Jesus gives two reasons for rejoicing and being glad here in this text. Uh, When when you are persecuted for Christ's sake, he says, here's how you can be glad. I'm not suggesting you be glad because you lost a job, or you lose your property, or you're put in prison, or you're insulted. But Jesus says you can be glad that you have a reward in heaven that is great. Did you see that in verse 12? Uh, In the context here, sorry. You can be glad because of that. You have a great reward in heaven. And second, we're to rejoice because the world persecuted the prophets who came before us. You can read about them in your Old Testament. In other words, I think what Jesus is saying, you and I, are if we suffer persecution, we're in good company. We're in good company. And so the more your faith is tested through suffering, the greater you will be your reward. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 19. He said, everyone, look at this, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. 
The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17 here, for this, now this is, this is Paul speaking. Some people look at Paul and say, you're nuts, Paul. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison because, how can Paul have that point of view? All those things that he suffered, he's saying it's just a slight momentary affliction. How can you have that perspective? Because he has this perspective. He says, we look not to the things that are seen with our eyeballs, but the things that are unseen. So he, he's, he's saying here that affliction, your persecution, what you go through, is actually preparing you, it's bringing about this eternal weight of glory. It's bringing about a glorious reward. In other words, rejoice and be glad in the midst of suffering for righteousness' sake and for Jesus' sake. Because Jesus says that that very suffering that you're going to receive has great compensation. It has a great reward. And the greater the suffering your faith endures, the greater the reward you're going to receive in heaven. God knows what happens in your life, and He rewards appropriately. So Jesus says, rejoice and be glad because of that. Because of what? Because great is your reward in heaven. So what's the implication of the text? Well, there might be many implications I haven't thought of, but certainly one clear implication in this text is we're to keep our hearts in heaven. How can someone have the right perspective and rejoice and be glad in suffering without that perspective? If if your heart's not in heaven, if you're not looking for that reward, then you might be tempted to become a hermit and run away, escape, or become a, a secret agent Christian and hide your light. See, Jesus wills for his disciples here to desire the reward of heaven more than you more than you desire the approval of man. Jesus wills for us to have our treasure not on earth but in heaven, he says. In fact, he says that in the very next chapter, right? He says, don't lay up your treasure on earth, lay it up in heaven. Jesus wills for your heart to be to be so set on heaven, for your affections to be so set on heaven that Hey, you're willing to rejoice in whatever happens to you here on earth. Jesus wills for us to have our hearts primarily in heaven. He wills for your joy to be in heaven as well. He wills for your affections to be in heaven. That's why Colossians 3, 2 says, Set your affections on things above, not on the earth. And so there's no other way that you can rejoice and be glad when you lose something on this earth, if if you don't love something else more. Do you understand what I'm saying? You must have a superior pleasure. And hopefully that superior pleasure is Jesus, being with Him and all the rewards that come with being with Him in heaven. So what shall we do? Well, the simple answer is, what do we do? We need to love God. And love where we're, we're going to spend eternity. Now, some people say heaven. Uh, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions on heaven. So, why, why is heaven so precious to Jesus? And why is Jesus continually pointing your attention and your focus to heaven? Why is heaven so precious? I like what John MacArthur said, quote, In reality, everything that is truly precious to us as Christians is in heaven. End quote. <laughs> That's helpful. So what's in heaven, and why is heaven so precious? Number one, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, are in heaven. Now, yes, they're everywhere, okay? I know, God is everywhere. But whenever you read about heaven, it always talks about their presence being there. Well, that should be reason enough, but let me give you some other reasons the Bible talks about. Many brothers and sisters in Christ are in heaven. Some Marie's mother's in heaven, and she'll get to see her mother again. Some of you have siblings, and 
loved ones and friends who are already there in heaven. They're, they're there when you get there, and you'll get to see them again. But in Luke chapter 10, Christ actually tells his disciples, by the way, in the context, they were casting out demons. Jesus says this, Rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And by the way, by by saying our names are written in heaven, what's Christ doing there? Christ is, is assuring us that we have this title deed. Uh, it's a title deed to a property in heaven. You haven't seen it yet. You haven't been there. You haven't paid anything for it. It's your inheritance. It's there, and you already have this title deed to this glorious inheritance. That's your inheritance. 1 Peter 1, 4 says, We're begotten in Christ to an inheritance. Notice what the Bible says. What's your inheritance like? It's incorruptible. It is undefiled. It is reserved in heaven for you. So that's, that's the third reason. Your, your name is actually recorded in heaven. The Bible talks about this book in heaven. The, and, and all believers' names are written there in that book that's in heaven. And number four, our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, heaven is where you belong. The Bible describes Christians as just strangers and exiles, pilgrims passing through this world. So our goals, therefore, should not include, let's see how much accumulation of stuff I can get here and now. Our real wealth, our eternal reward is in heaven. And so that's why Jesus says in the next chapter, don't lay up treasures on earth. By the way, Jesus isn't against wealth and treasure. He's just against the the foolish accumulation of stuff that will not last. So Jesus says, by all means, have wealth and treasure just stored up where it's going to be eternal. (laughs) Right? Which the only place is heaven. Again, John MacArthur says this, quote, So self-indulgence and materialism in the church has a particularly destructive spiritual bent. It undermines everything the church should stand for. It tears Christians away from their heavenly moorings, and it makes them worldly. The term worldliness almost sounds outdated, doesn't it? Many people think it sounds petty, legalistic, and unnecessarily old-fashioned. Our grandparents heard sermons against the sin of worldliness. We think we're too sophisticated to concern ourselves with such trivial matters. But the real problem is, excuse me, the real problem is we're not sufficiently concerned with heavenly values. So we don't appreciate how wickedly sinful it is to hold on to earthly ones. And that is the essence of worldliness. It involves love for earthly things, esteem for earthly values, and preoccupation with earthly cares. Scripture plainly labels it sin and sin of the worst stripe. It is a spiritual form of adultery that sets one against God himself. James 4.4 says, You adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. End quote. Hmm. Question. I know. So somebody might here might be thinking this question. Well, what about that person that is so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good? You ever heard that? What about that so-called imaginary person who is so heavenly minded he's no earthly good? Let me ask you this. Have you ever met that person? Does that person really exist? If somebody should ask whether having a heart in heaven is going to make you useless on earth, is that true? Well, the answer is given by Jesus. Okay, Let's go to the authority. Can you actually be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good? Here's what Jesus says. Look at Matthew 5, verse 13. Because Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. 
But if salt has lost its taste, how, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So what does Jesus say? People who have their hearts in heaven here are the salt of the earth. They are the light of the world. That's what Jesus said. So I ask you, how shall we keep our hearts in heaven then? That's what Jesus is saying. Keep your heart in heaven. Keep your affections in heaven. Keep them on Him, not on this earth. So how are you going to do that? Because your three enemies, which are Satan, this world, and your own indwelling sin, are going to draw your heart away from heaven and away from Jesus. So how shall we keep our hearts in heaven? Number one, make it a regular practice of your life to consider the prophets and the apostles of old. That's what Jesus says to do here, right? The end of verse 12, he, he, he mentions the prophets here who go before us. So let's take Jesus' advice. Look to those uh, prophets and apostles who were persecuted and killed for the cause of Christ. And here's where autobiographies and biographies can be helpful. By all means, read the Bible, what it says about them, but it doesn't say everything. Put yourself in prison with them. Wear their shoes. Wear their sandals. Learn how these people, uh, by God's grace, how they learn to love Jesus and love heaven. Uh, you can go to the martyrs, read Fox's Book of Martyrs and other books like that. Uh, for example, in Fox's Book of Martyrs, you'll learn about the apostles and what happened to them based on... Um, Stories that were handed on down through church history. For example, you can read about the Apostle James. He was the first martyr condemned by a false accuser. He showed, he showed such joy and courage that his very accuser ended up trusting in Christ. And in 44 AD, he was led to the chopping block and was beheaded. Philip was arrested for preaching. He was beaten unmercifully. He was thrown into prison, and the next day they nailed him to a cross. Matthew was beheaded by an axe. Mark uh, was mobbed by the people in Alexandria, Egypt, dragged through the streets until he was, he was mutilated and was burned alive like a piece of rubbish. Matthias was stoned in Jerusalem, and then they beheaded him. Peter was put in prison for about nine months. Then they scourged him and crucified him, and he believed that he wasn't worthy to be crucified like the Lord Jesus. So they said, please turn me upside down. And they crucified him upside down. And he watched his wife crucified with him. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew was beaten to death with clubs. Thomas was, was preaching, had gone all the way over to India and uh, eventually arrested and speared to death. Luke is said to have been crucified. Simon was crucified. Andrew was crucified in Greece, apparently. And you know the Apostle Paul was beheaded in Rome. So, Jesus says, look to people like the prophets and the apostles. <laughs> Another thing you could do is, Read the testimonies of those who have given their all for Christ. I have been so blessed and helped by my brothers and sisters who have gone before me. Let me just share some, some of my dear brothers and sisters here with you. For example, there's a letter from John Hooper that was written three weeks before he was burned at the stake. And this was in England in the year 1555. And uh, John Hooper says this, you must now turn all your thoughts from the peril you see and mark the felicity that follows the peril. Because of beholding too much the felicity or the misery of this world, for the consideration and the too earnest love of fear of either of them draws from God. 
Here he is. He's exhorting people, don't be drawn into this world, but be drawn to Christ. Some of you may have heard of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the, uh, the German Christian, uh, because he stood up to Adolf Hitler. He was executed, and as he left his prison room, he was, they headed him off to the gallows. The year was 1945, the year World War II ended. A man by the name of Payne Best wrote this. He says, this is the end, supposedly quote, quoting Bonhoeffer, this is the end, for me, the beginning of life. <laughs> Ten years later, the camp doctor, the Nazi camp doctor, wrote this. He says, at the place of execution, Bonhoeffer said a short prayer. He climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. He wasn't afraid. He was at peace. By God's grace, God gave him peace and Christ was there with him. So my friends, Jesus is exhorting you in verse 12 to look to the prophets. The prophets of old, the prophets of God. Look to the apostles. Look to the martyrs. Look to those who have gone before you. Read Hebrews chapter 11. See, not all, not all receive good things, Hebrews 11 says. So, so look to those kind of people. Look to prophets like Isaiah who was put inside a hollow log and they cut the log in two. And my friends, whatever you must do to get your heart in heaven and off this world, we need to do it. And we need to encourage each other in this endeavor and remind ourselves, continually remind ourselves of this truth This world is not my home. I'm just passing through it. I am a citizen of heaven, but I am an ambassador for Christ. May God enable us to actually believe that so that we would live this out in a very hostile world that does not love Christ, does not love God, does not love His Word, and will attack us and is attacking us. This is what Jesus wants us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're, we're thankful for these precious words and teaching from Jesus. So may we understand them, live them out. May we be a people who really believe what we believe so that we can rejoice and be glad in persecution. May, may, we, uh, may, we, may we be looking to Christ and looking to heaven and our inheritance and reward. May our affections and our joy and, and our, our mind be set on things above and not on the earth so much so that um, we're not tempted to love this world and the things in this world. May we see that for what it is. It's just a, it's just a mirage. It's just temporary. So give us that kind of a love for you and for heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.